0: Welcome to this episode of the decade podcast, a podcast where we curiously explore holistic sustainability and answers to the question, how on earth can we live together? Join us as we learn from inspiring stories from champions of sustainability and beyond. We hope to inspire you to think, act and work for a better planet for all throughout this decade of action in this episode we speak with joe brewer the author of the book the design pathway to regenerating the earth and this was honestly one of the most favorite conversations so far that i've had throughout this uh, podcast i was really impressed by how much wisdom joe sits on and his ability to explain scenarios we're, we're facing and how we can act towards regenerating the earth Our conversation circled around just that, uh, regenerating the earth, and what we need to focus on in order to do that. Joe explains terms like developmental entrenchment and how that has affected us throughout our evolution. We talk about ecological trauma and grief. And moreover, we talked about something that I found very interesting, cultural scaffolding and how that will play a crucial role in the coming years. So without revealing any more details, I give you our next episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Decade podcast. Very excited today to tell you that we have a super exciting guest named Joe Brewer. Welcome, Joe. How are you today?
1: Doing great. Lovely to be here with you guys.
0: Nice. Nice. It's so lovely to have you here as well. You have a quite unique background, I I must say. You have a background in physics, math, philosophy, atmospheric science, complexity research, and cognitive linguistics. And more than a decade ago, you, you left the academics to trailblaze a path for other research practitioners to follow and awakened to the threat of human-induced climate disruption while pursuing a PhD in atmospheric science, you switched fields and began to work with uh, scholars in the behavioral and cognitive science with the hope of helping create large-scale behavior change at the level of global civilization. And you've also spoken at many global conferences on the science of social change and the human dimension of uh, planetary sustainability and has given many workshops on uh, three continents about the workings of the human mind and the uh, strategic tools for for designing and enacting positive change in the world. Moreover, you've written a book about the design pathway to regenerate in the Earth that will be released officially in October uh, this year. Am I right?
1: Yeah, it's coming out in a few weeks.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. And we will get into a bit about this, this book today, both me and... Uh, Melker has uh, have already actually read it and I can uh, more than recommend listeners to uh, buy that one and, and, and read it. It was a fantastic read. Is there anything else you would like to add there about yourself and the work you do in Baruchara in Colombia today?
1: Yeah, I would add that my academic background also includes studying theater and dance mm-hmm. and oh, that amazing. this body-based element is really important. Uh, my first undergraduate degree was interdisciplinary, combining physics, philosophy, and dance. And wow. um, I've been weaving and twirling ever since. <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool, cool. Great for the mind of uh, the playful mind as well, to to keep that inner child and playfulness.
1: Absolutely, and as I'm sure will come up in our conversation today, We now have, my wife and I have a daughter that's four years old, and uh, one of my best teachers, better than my academic training in many ways, (laughs) is learning from a child in the innocence as they interact with the world around them.
2: Mm, Mm. Love it. Love it. I'm super excited to, perhaps can we start from the start, if there is a start, like uh, just give listeners a background, because I think it's quite usual in the field of sustainability and climate change to start the conversation with the industrial revolution. And from reading your book and listening to you, we have heard that you have a longer time perspective on uh, what takes humans to this position in life. So would you indulge us in, in your perspective on what brought us here in the way that you find fitting for this uh, this format?
1: Yeah, it's funny how the industrial revolution might take us back 150 years, or maybe the scientific revolution, and then we're talking 300 or 400 years. But the place I began uh, really was inspired by the work of people like Brian Swim, or the Big History Project with David Christian, and others who look at cosmic evolution, and planetary evolution, and then later, biological evolution. And... When we put what's happening today in a perspective like that, we go back something more like two or three million years to see the origin of our current ecological crisis. So those who know a bit about human evolution will know that we parted ways with our common primate ancestor about six million years ago. So the ancestral hominids, those astrolopithecus boisei and homo habilis and the others that have been named along the way. Mm -hmm. And the place where I really like to begin the story of our ecological crisis today is with the birth of symbolic or conceptual metaphor, which can be seen in the early tool users in our ancestral line who could look at a rock and in the rock, see the mental representation of a cutting wedge or a tool and then shape the physical object to match what was in their mind. And this, about, this ability, ability to use cultural capacities to create tools began a process. And the next step forward, I usually like to tell, just to keep it brief, because there's really a lot involved in this story, <laughs> mm. is about one and a half, two million years ago, when our ancestors made another um, evolutionary leap, when they learned how to control and domesticate fire. And the way I like to tell this story is to imagine if you held a picture of a gorilla next to a picture of a human and rescale them so they're the same height. And what you'll notice is that the gorilla has this great big gut, this huge stomach, much bigger than humans. Even when you account for Homer Simpson and the the beer gut phenomenon, (laughs) these guts are much larger. And it turns out there's a very important cultural reason for this which is that the two biggest energy drains of a mammal or of a really of of most animals that have central nervous systems is the size of their brain and the size of their digestive system. In particular, Mm -hmm. their intestines takes a lot of energy to digest food. And so when our hominid ancestors learned how to control fire and invented cooking, There was less evolutionary pressure on their gut and their intestines got shorter and shorter with later generations, which freed up energy to go into growing larger brains. And it Mm -hmm. also enabled those increasingly brained hominids to sit around fires and share stories and ideas with each other, teach each other how to build tools. And they began a process of what we now know we now call cumulative cultural evolution which is the ability for culture to build on itself. And we really have no evidence at this point in time of any non-human species being able to accumulate on cultural evolution. There are lots of animals that have cultural evolution, like birds and whales that change their songs and their communications. But this ability to take a previous repertoire of culture and then build on top of it and make it more complex seems to be pretty uniquely human. And what this does is it allows our ancestors to change their environments in a way that can be inherited by their descendants. So if you think of a beaver that changes a river by building a dam, and then the next generation of beavers inherits a changed landscape, Mm. humans can do this to the extent of producing the New York subway system or global telecommunications were other very complex technological infrastructure because of this ability to accumulate on culture that came before which opens up a very specific capacity which is for cultural evolution to change and grow exponentially and when you look at the ecological crisis that we're in today it is dominated by pathways of change that are exponential And most of those exponential drivers of human population growth, adoption of smartphones, or pick Hmm. any other exponential uh, change pattern that is dominating the planet today, it is driven by this process of human cultural evolution. Hmm. So that's why I start this story about three million years ago, when our ancestors created the basic scaffolding for creating complex systems of language and concepts, to then increasingly make complex, more complex technologies and tools, and teach them to each other. Mm. So our current runaway cultural evolution, as the cause of the planetary crisis, is this phenomenon exhibited in the human ancestral line.
2: Mm. I find that super insightful. And mm. um, studying this field, we often talk about sustainability, like we need a longer time frame forward. But I think it's super important also to have the long time from backwards to not draw too narrow conclusions about what it is that uh, makes us be in this situation. But what I'm also hearing in terms of exponential curves is that usually these exponential curves, I just want to point this out, that the, the tail in the beginning can be low for such a long time. And I think it's perhaps usually not completely integrated and understood just how long that can be before uh, if we take the access to energy for humans, for example, that uh, it's been an exponential curve way before the industrial revolution, but that's when there is a confliction point kind of because we tapped into the fossil fuels. Um, and I'm, I'm curious there to, if we start from the backdrop and then look forward with uh, the uh, exponential curve and take us into overshoot. Um, I know you have thoughts on scenarios for uh, how overshoot, because overshoot is like the definition is that we can't stay there. Uh, it's just a matter of how we <laughs> take ourselves from there back into the planetary restrictions. So what different scenarios do you see, and which one do you prefer?
1: Well. When I think about overshoot, one of the key concepts that is important to understand is carrying capacity. And carrying capacity is the renewable capacity of an ecosystem to provide the inputs for the way of life for whatever organism is living. So if it's frogs, it might be a a pond. If it's starfish, it might be a tidal zone uh, where the tides are on the coastline and so on. And we look at humans, we have this wild card, which is the structure and dynamic feedbacks of our cultural systems, the way we organize our societies, the way we organize our cooperation and the technologies that we use. And this can create a really interesting phenomenon, which is we can be in a state of overshoot and not know it for a fairly long period of time, and that while we're in overshoot, we can alter what kind of landing happens on the other side. Mm -hmm. We can make it substantially worse or we can make it less bad. We can have a softer landing or a harder landing. And when we think about the planet in this way, one thing that comes out is that um, the the evidence that's accumulated shows we have gone into planetary scale overshoot going back at least as far as the mid-1970s. I was born in 1976. So basically, we were in overshoot all of my life. I was born into it. Everyone younger than me, the same is true. And one way that we can think about that is that the the way that humans got to overshoot was by colonizing landscapes and by colonizing the functions and resources of ecosystems. By claiming the land, the physical space, the geography, but also by utilizing it for ourselves. And one example of this is that as human population became exponential, starting in the early 20th century, once they started measuring rates of extinction for non-human species, the extinction curve became exponential and tracks human population. Human population goes up and non-human extinction goes up. And so what's happened is we have hollowed out ecosystems across the planet. This is really important for looking at scenarios of the future because extinctions are, for all practical purposes, they're permanent. In previous mass extinction events, to recover the number of families of mammals, for example, took between 5 and 10 million years after the last mass extinction event. So for practical purposes, we can call that permanent. And so when we talk about scenarios of the future, the first thing we have to do is set physical limits on what cannot happen. One thing that cannot happen is we cannot grow forever. And another thing that cannot happen is the loss of complexity in the world. So, for example, the loss of biodiversity cannot be recovered as quickly as our global economy's complexity goes down. So as we go into a collapse of the human system, the human population, the complexity of our societies, when that collapse process begins, it will be at least 100 years, you could even measure further back almost 10,000 years to the birth of agriculture, Mm. where we have been simplifying non-human ecosystems to add complexity to human societies. So all of my scenarios of the future are a reversal of this, that the complexity in the human system will go down. And if we do this well, the complexity of more than human ecology will go up. If we do it badly, it will continue going down. And then what will happen is like the tail wagging the dog, the more we degrade environments as our complexity goes down, the harder we crash and the closer we get to human extinction. And so my limit, my extreme scenario is human extinction is a possibility and we need to do all we can to avoid it. Mm -hmm. So that's like, if you're thinking worst case scenario to take action on would be that. And best case scenario is as the human system collapses, human population goes down and the complexity of our global economy goes down, which is what studies like the limits to growth study from Mm -hmm. the early 1970s which was not a forecast, but has tracked reality as though it was a really good one. Um, Their business-as-usual scenario tracks all key indicators extremely well, which is really disturbing. That if we take that as a thinking tool, we can see that human population peaks between 2030 and 2040, and then rapidly declines. And in their scenario for limits to growth, it drops to about 2 billion people but they didn't account for climate change. They didn't Mm. have earth system science. They didn't have the global infrastructure of satellites and Mm. high powered computational modeling that we have today. So it could actually be worse. But the thing to have in mind is, if that scenario turns out to be true, you have to ask yourself, how do you get to zero population growth? Mm. If the birth rate is going up exponentially, That means the death rate has to go up exponentially to match it. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever looked at this, but if you look at human population growth in the 20th century and zoom in on World War II,
2: Hmm.
1: human population uh, grew during World War II. There is a measurable reduction in the slope. So those few hundred million people that died from the war caused the slope to decline, but the population grew continuously. And so if you try to imagine what it takes for a human population to hit zero growth, the death rate has to grow more rapidly than the birth rate until they hit parity, and then you're at zero population growth. So if there's zero population growth at 2040, that means there's going to be an increase in population die-off starting between now and 2040. And so, That is, this is quite, scary <laughs> yeah. quite scary thought. Quite scary thought.
2: yeah. And uh, this topic has been alive for us to bring in uh, what could be called the uh, ecological grief and trauma, like from from seeing this uh, the dire straits and seeing all that happening and feeling empathy for all the diversities that is getting lost, and perhaps empathy also for people today having their lives disrupted by climate-induced events, um, but. This is something that we take very importantly in this podcast that we don't want to stay stuck and pacified by grief and trauma, uh, but while recognizing its importance in, in this whole field and in this whole challenge that we have ahead. So I guess my question here is that like from really feeling all this, like understanding it, how can we be then pragmatic about it and be empowered to do something rather than staying uh, in the doom and gloom of these situations.
1: One of the elements of this question that has continually surprised people that I've been in contact with is that as we come to accept the reality of what we fear what begins to happen is we have a release of energy because we hold a lot of emotional energy to avoid something we're afraid of. And when we're finally able to accept it, there's all of this free energy, this energy that is liberated by the process. And one way that it's liberated is in the ability to stop trying to avoid something that's impossible to stop, which includes stop feeling shame, stop feeling humiliation, Mm stop feeling angry when you're failing to stop it. But there's another side of it as well, which is you start to see what actually can help because you're not focused on things that you can't help. Mm. And I'll give a very simple example of this just to make it concrete. My wife and I for a long time debated whether we should have a child and bring a child into this world. Mm. And in 2017, our daughter was born we chose with eyes wide open to have a child. And we realized only after our daughter was born and we'd reflected on it for a while what caused us to make the decision to put a child into this dangerous situation where the future looks so harmful. And what we realized was we actually believe in humans and we believe humans should stick around. Mm and the humans make the world better. Like on average, humans add to the planet more than they take away. And this ability to see something beautiful in being human as part of nature freed us up to love ourselves enough to have the joy of raising a child. But then very pragmatically, we yes. could no longer make half-assed decisions. Like, okay, we got rid of our car a long time ago. We lived in the U.S. Everyone has cars. got rid of our car. We lived in a city where we could walk or bike. And we started doing that instead. But we still lived in the city and depended on fossil fuel infrastructure and blah, 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 all these things. Hmm. But as soon as our daughter was born, we couldn't do that anymore. She radicalized us. She empowered us to make the choices that we knew we needed to make which was to go off-grid, to go away from the city. And through a series of steps, we did things like we spent 10 years living in a, a rainforest in Costa Rica and visiting a lot of permaculture projects while our daughter learned about biodiversity, which was really fun. I mean, we loved it and she loved it. And we realized that when we visited this biodiversity hotspot, we realized we had always lived in degraded environments without knowing it. Because we'd never been to a place where there were 700 bird species and 10,000 insect species and more than a thousand tree species likely found in this tropical rainforest. And so this is what's interesting is once we knew that we needed to go off grid and make more radical choices, we found ourselves in more human environments in more inspiring and enriching places And found ourselves more comfortable enjoying being in them because our actions aligned with our values. And that is, if you look at the six steps of the grieving process, once you get to acceptance, you start this process of post-traumatic growth. And all Mm. the research in positive psychology shows us it's in this place where we are the most adaptive, the most innovative, the most creative, the most capable of following through. This is where we need people to be. Mm. And so the gift was that as we stopped fighting against a feared future and started giving love to a future we wanted in really small ways, we came more and more into alignment with being human and our grief became like a compass. It showed us how to heal ourselves. Mm. And that's how we're now able to participate in large-scale reforestation and trying to save a particular type of ecosystem from extinction. And we're doing this regenerative work on landscapes, collaborating with people around the world. Whereas before we were crippled with grief and trauma was reactivated in us continuously. Mm. So, um, so yeah, this is a really, really important topic as, as mm. you can see, and it's something that I feel is fundamental if we don't work through our trauma and if we don't embrace our grieving process We will not get to a place where we can do regenerative work. It's Mm. just that fundamental.
0: Mm. Yeah, this really resonates with me. And I think it's really inspiring and admirable to hear you talk about your your current lifestyle down in Colombia. You're really walking the talk. And um, I mean, a lot of people can really resonate with this, that you usually hear people talking about climate anxiety. But I think it's more effective to go past that and have climate grief because then you're in a state of acceptance. And as, as you describe it there, then you, you're able to take full action instead. But what I'm curious to hear more about, what, what was it with just Barrichara and Colombia that because uh, you, you mentioned that you traveled around a bit in Costa Rica and to search for this place to, to, to settle down. What was it that, that you settled just in Barrichara and Colombia?
1: Yeah, about three years ago, I was working with an organization called the Capital Institute. And Capital Institute, um, John Fullerton is the founder. He created a beautiful framework for understanding regenerative economics. And my work at that time was with a project called the Regenerative Communities Network, which is a global network of places where people are trying to create Regional scale economies that regenerate landscapes and create integrated harmony with the ecosystems that are in them And that meant I got to meet some of the places on earth that are the furthest along in doing that kind of work And I also helped organize an event in Colombia to launch Colombia's first one of these regional projects. It's called Colombia Regenerativa And I met this really inspiring young man named Felipe. And we connected around education and raising our children, because he and his wife had three children about our daughter's age. And I was talking a lot at that time about bioregional learning centers. And he came over to me, said, that's what we want to create as a bioregional learning center. And then afterwards, we talked more. And he said that they had been living in Barichara, which is this small village in the Andes, of Northern Colombia and it's a place that has a community reforestation project that is owned by the community, that's been going for about 12 years. Two lovely old women in their 70s have been doing all of the work themselves. Felipe and his wife started a forest school in Escuela del Bosque to teach children ecological connection and deep ecology while reforesting in this in this community project. Hmm my wife and I were looking for a place where we could raise our daughter in community, connect directly to community projects, learn how and practice reforestation with children, and do it in a place that was far enough from a big city that we weren't constrained by all of the zoning restrictions and built infrastructure of a city, and a place that had a strong local arts and crafts culture and a connection to its indigenous history. So we could try to recover some of that. When we came to Barichara, the original plan was to be here for three months and then spend the next year traveling to other places. Mm. By the end of the second month, we were already trying to figure out how to get our visas and stay here.
2: (laughs) And now we've been here
1: for almost two years because the community has been wonderful, all these other families and children. And we have just ourselves have identified more than 30 reforestation projects happening across the territory. I'm sure there are more. This is just the ones we found. And now we're like deeply integrating ourselves into the community and its future. But it was beautifully connection with another parent and the love of their children who wanted to raise their children for the future that we know is coming. That was really what brought us to Colombia. And then this opportunity to be in this community reforestation project, which is called Bio Parque Moncora, Uh, which is a six and a half hectare reforestation project that we're now building a food forest in and I've been doing reforestation and water retention work in for a year and a half.
0: Amazing. That's um, sounded like a match made in heaven. Your, your aspirations and thoughts and uh, Baruchara, right?
1: Yeah. My wife wanted to create a food forest and I wanted to participate in large scale Landscape regeneration for entire watersheds and mountain ranges. Mm, So to be here, we're working at the scale of 500,000 hectares. Mm. That's the scale of the bioregion. And it's defined by three major rivers and three parallel mountain ranges.
0: Mm. Cool. And we've touched a little bit, or you touched a little bit upon it here, but in your book, you use this beautiful metaphor of the, the scaffolding. And when, when constructing a building, we use scaffoldings, right, to, to raise the walls and, and build buildings. And you use this metaphor when you talk about our further development and our scaffolding. Uh, could you take us through that? What, what are the scaffolding for humanity to come into this, this regenerative state in this coming decade or the, the future ahead?
1: Yeah, let me start by explaining how cultural scaffolding is defined by the research community. Um, And I would say William Wimsatt is probably the best person to look up for this research. And what they described is just like how a child that doesn't know how to walk has an adult who holds their hand until they're able to walk on their own. That's a form of developmental scaffolding for childhood development. So cultural scaffolding is the more general and universal way of thinking about this kind of process. And the research community has found that cultural scaffolding has agents, you know, actors, or people who are doing things, has the roles that they perform, has artifacts or tools that they use, and has structures in their environment. And the cultural scaffolding is the interactions between these four things, between the agents, their tools, the roles that they perform, and the shapes of their environments. So when you think in this way, you can see right now we have cultural scaffolding of computers and telecommunications infrastructure a shared English language that we're using to speak to each other each of us is playing roles but we're active agents participating in our learning process so that's just a way of seeing that cultural scaffolding is around us all the time mm. so when we look at cultural scaffolding one way to think about it is which direction of development it supports and the other is which development direct which direction of development It restricts. Hmm. So you have this thing called developmental entrenchment. You develop in a direction and you can't develop in another direction. Hmm. Classic example of this is brain development and language learning. If a child is deprived of an environment to interact with, a human child is deprived of a social environment to learn language while their brain is developing basic structures, they will be greatly limited later in their ability to develop language. Because there are structures in the brain that support language development at one stage and then are locked in and would not allow it later if it mm. didn't already happen. This is really important to understand because the cultural scaffolding we need is to give a bridge or an escape hatch or an off-ramp from the freeway to get out of the entrenchment of the mainstream society and its, mm. and its, its, uh, its entrenchments. And then from there to create developmental supports for a different way of living. I want to make this really simple. Mm -hmm. The key to all of this is highly functioning small groups of people. Think of having a support network to help you stop drinking alcohol. Or a support network to help you go from high school to college and pick out what you should study. Your support network might be your mother, your great uncle, your high school janitor, your best friend. You have a small group of people that you go to for support when you're making a change in your life. The cultural scaffolding that we need is when we're making changes in our lives, who are the people that we gather together with that help each other to make changes? Hmm. Now I want to give an example of a cultural scaffolding process that's proving to be quite powerful. There's a global network led by John D. Liu, the journalist and filmmaker who created Greening the Desert, he and a group of collaborators created ecosystem restoration camps. If you think about ecosystem restoration camps as cultural scaffolding, let's say you're an undergraduate student studying sustainability, but you want some hands-on experience, you can sign up for an ecosystem restoration camp and go and spend five days or two weeks, depending on the event, and plant some trees and learn about an ecosystem somewhere else on Earth. There is cultural scaffolding where you can join a small group of people and learn and grow as a person. And after that experience and after building those relationships, it's easier to change even further. So this is the process of cultural scaffolding that we need. And notice how I am very intentionally not talking about scaffolding for changing cities, for changing the global economy, for changing nation states, for changing supply chains, All of these things are so developmentally entrenched that Mm. often in ways that are invisible to us, they are difficult or impossible to change or they're about to be disrupted by some collapse process. Like all the people flying on airplanes that all got collapsed by COVID last year with the global pandemic. Mm. And so the key is to have small, resilient, healthy pathways of change. And that happens in small groups of people supporting each other. And so the key here for cultural scaffolding is to learn what is the extractive and destructive economy you're moving away from and what is a regenerative way of living that you're moving toward. So there's a kind of knowledge or semantic scaffolding to have the concepts, to have the semantic frames, to understand what that means, to know what you're going away from and what you're going toward. Basic psychology says you need both to change behavior. You need avoidance and attraction You need positive and negative reinforcers of behavior. So you need to know what you're going away from and what you're going toward, which is a kind of narrative scaffolding, a story of where you're from and where you're going. But then you need people to connect to with shared social identity. You need examples of places you can go, of things you can do. So you might go and take a permaculture course, or you might go and learn landscape uh, management, or you might go learn forestry, or you might go learn trauma therapy, or you might go learn group uh, facilitation, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. all kinds of things you can learn. But the key thing is that you focus on small groups of support to make life changes and you learn what you're going away from and what you're going toward.
2: Mm. Oh, there's so much in here. And the first point I want to touch on is that you mentioned like developmental entrenchment. And this was an eye opener for me when I read your book, uh, perhaps not seeing the frames from within we're thinking within, Uh, so I know that, uh, my own journey into sustainability has been a lot of, um, asking questions, thinking I have some answers that turns out to be mirages because it's just a mirage for more questions. Um, but that I've been thinking that, okay, we're going to solve it by innovate with business somehow, uh, and find back then I, it was really reductionist approaches as well. Like we have one solution and that's going to fix it. But I uh, know there's this example of we can't save the earth by making greener consumerism because uh, if we are in the developmental entrenchment of consumerism, then uh, that's the first step to get out of that. But then I find the attraction in this that when you talk about raising your daughter in, in the environments of Barichara with regenerative practices, imagine like the... The scaffolding that she will already have as an adult, and the trenches that she will not be in because of living <laughs> in in that way from the get go. So that makes me super inspired for uh, the future um, of younger generations if they can be in those environments. Yeah. I'm, is there anything else you could say on like to just clarify the idea of developmental entrenchment for yeah. us and listeners?
1: I'll give a good example that goes beyond a human lifetime because these entrenchment mm-hmm. processes can be big. So I'll give two examples. One is the invention of agriculture and the formation of permanent settlements, like cities. You know, so that's a multi-generational process with a lot of cultural scaffolding, and it happens across you know, hundreds of years or in some cases, a couple of thousand years. There's also a, an example that relates directly to what we're talking about now, which is the loss of nature connection which is what's sometimes called intergenerational amnesia so Mm. the the abundance of nature that you experience as a child is your baseline for what nature is so if you are born a hundred years after the collapse of an ecosystem your normal which you think is a healthy ecosystem is actually a very degraded ecosystem so the developmental entrenchment here is the absence of opportunity to build relationships with the more-than-human world. But you don't even know that that's a developmental entrenchment because your baseline of normal is 100 years after the collapse. So, for example, I was born in Missouri in the middle of the United States. And I grew up in a place where there was some oak forest There were still some streams that were clean enough you could scoop your hand in and drink the water. But there were not the mass migrations of animals that used to occur. There were not the 2,000-year-old oak trees, which I've actually seen uh, a cutout, uh, a section of a 2,000-year-old oak tree in Illinois that I saw as an adult. Those massive trees had all been cut down in the early 1800s. I was born in the 1970s. So as that's an example of my time as a child escaping into the woods and spending time playing by the creek and forming my relationships with nature. All of that occurred in a deprived and degraded environment, and I didn't know it. Now think about what happened in the last 20 years. First time in human history, more than half of humans are born in cities. More than half. That That flipped over around 2005, I forget exactly what year, but it was in this century that we went to a majority human urban living. So people born into urban environments have dramatically degraded ecological settings. All they see is human built environment and they might go to a park and see a couple of kinds of trees and a couple of kinds of birds. And so this is an important form of developmental entrenchment because the key to doing regenerative work is the ability to form relationships and to care with the life-giving aspects of our planet, hmm. to see how water enters soil, how trees form, uh, provide habitats and homes, how mycelia and microorganisms in the soil uh, change the molecular chemistry to enable other forms of life to exist, And it's all built up through relationships and the ethics that arises in those relationships. But if we do not know how hollowed out our ecology has become, Hmm. we don't know how much regeneration is possible. A lot more regeneration is possible than we realize if we're able to connect with more of nature. (laughs) I'll give a fun little example from yesterday. We returned to Bharichara after being in the US for a few weeks. Yesterday was the first morning we're here. I take my daughter. We're walking up the cobblestone streets. We're here in the mountains with a steep hill. We go up to the top of the town where the bio Parque is. As we're walking, we pass this large native cactus. One of its arms had fallen off because that's how they propagate themselves. As one of the arms falls off, it forms roots and grows next to the mother plant. But in this case, it fell on the side of the road. It was like a potted plant. So we just picked it up and carried it with us to go and plant it because we knew that it makes this beautiful, bright pink fruit that's really delicious, that we've actually harvested ourselves, but also it's great for insects and birds to eat. And then we walk another 50 meters, we come across a plant that we know that's called pate vaca, we see these beautiful pink and white flowers, and my daughter looks up and notices there's this giant bumblebee, it's a black bumblebee that's like three centimeters long, it's huge. We stop to watch it flittering from flower to flower, as she's saying, I wonder if it'll go to that one. I wonder if it'll go to this one. And I noticed she was happy to be home in Barichara. at the moment she connected with the bumblebee.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we stopped and watched it for a minute and then walked a, two minutes further, went to where we we're building a food forest, and we planted the cactus in the ground. Mm-hmm. And so for us to just have a, in a span of 10 minutes, the ability to connect with a native plant, a native insect, and then provide a gift to the ground by actively transplanting one of them. My mm. daughter is forming a relationship to a web of life simply by being in an environment where she can do that.
2: Mm.
1: And we never could have done that in the city.
2: Mm.
0: So
1: incredible. so this is a form of developmental entrenchment mm. that we have to somehow contend with.
0: Yeah, I just have to say it's so insightful. And thank you, thank you very much for sharing your your knowledge and experiences from living this lifestyle. I think it's, for me, it makes a lot of sense. It feels, it just feels right. Uh, like, biologically, it, it feels right. W- what I'm curious to know more about is to, towards this more regenerative living. I mean, you, you, you haven't, as you mentioned, you haven't always had this kind of lifestyle. And I think you mentioned it a of times in, in the book, or maybe I've heard in an interview that you've faced a lot of obstacles towards this kind of living to a more regenerative lifestyle. Could you walk us through some of the main obstacles and how how you've overcome them for others to to maybe follow your path into a more regenerative living?
1: There are two large-scale patterns that spread across the whole process that I think people can relate to. One of them is the process of de-financializing our lives where we have less need for money and more freedom for how we use our time. The other one that is profoundly related to definancialization is decolonization of our minds. Or you could also say re-indigenizing ourselves, becoming more like humans and less like tools or less, less like parts of the machine of the global economy. Mm. One thing that was really slow for us was to figure out how could we get by without having to have a full-time job so that both my wife and I could be full-time parents to be present with our child. And that was a really slow process. So one thing that I did was for more than 10 years, I was blogging and writing and giving away all of my knowledge, just sharing it freely with a lot of people, which had the added benefit that I built a large social network a lot of connections on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and so on. And so when I decided after my daughter was born to create a Patreon account, there were enough people who were inspired by my work and felt that I was being generous and giving my knowledge away. They were very happy to give me a couple dollars a month. And so this grew to the point that my, I could stop working and then my wife still had to work because we lived in the U S and it was too expensive My Patreon support would not allow us to live in the US. But when she quit her job and we moved to Costa Rica where they provided housing in exchange for us to teach, my Patreon account was enough to cover our expenses. And we could just devote ourselves to parenting, raising our child and to teaching other people. And then when we came to Colombia one step further, the cost of living was even lower compared to where we were in Costa Rica. The environment was more supportive of our lifestyle, more things that were easier for us to do. And we were able to connect more with nature and start learning ecology of the local place. And my Patreon support went up as I grew the community around my book and we created the Earth Regenerators Network because I had a larger number of people that I was giving away my knowledge to. I was giving webinars, I shared the manuscript of the book. I provided reading materials and discussions, and then eventually we started giving learning journeys, and all of it was based in a gift economy. What's interesting is this process of definancializing our lives to free us to do more of the things we care about, and the decolonization of no longer being a worker, being a human, no longer being a resident of a city, but becoming an inhabitant of a territory, which is more like an indigenous person, or well, more like any biological organism. And then also the ability to be in a gift economy, which is not a market economy. It's not based on, on uh, money-based transactions. Money is expressed as, a, as an expression of gratitude in a gift economy, just as everything else is. Like I feel gratitude that the two of you created a podcast that I can share my knowledge on, and if we have a good relationship, it's reciprocal. You feel gratitude, I came to show my knowledge. It's a gift economy. Mm. A gift economy is not a market economy. It's an indigenous form of economy. Mm. In, yeah. uh, in Islamic finance, this is how um, haggling is done. When I was in Morocco, haggling over price, I was negotiating the quality of relationship between me and the other person. And we were figuring out what was sacred. And if this person just wanted to get money from me, there's nothing sacred. If I just wanted to get a cheap trinket, there was nothing sacred. And we would not find a good price. Because price was a signal of quality of relationship. The better the relationship, the lower the price. The more community, the less market. The more market, the less community. So a gift economy is not a market economy. And this is a form of decolonization of the mind and a re-indigenization of relationships. And so, uh, so there are a lot of specific obstacles and I'd be happy to go into them, but I, I think it's helpful to see this pattern level. Pattern level is the more you remove the need for financial transactions and the more you're able to be in reciprocal gift relationships, the more you've decolonized your life and definancialized it and the more you are regenerative because those processes themselves are regenerative processes.
2: Hmm. Wow, I'm, I'm so happy for this because I thought I was going into this super prepared and knowing a lot beforehand. But now I'm realizing that there's so many new ideas coming mm-hmm. from you today that I'm just trying to, to process as we go along here. But one thing that I'm hearing from this, uh, and I know I've learned this in your learning journey as well. Uh, called the Regenerative Finance, where we spoke about multi-capitalism. And uh, what I'm hearing is that you're really talking about moving away from the monocapitalistic capitalistic of reducing, reducing really the broad term of value into the term of money, uh, but rather having uh, like inspirational value and social relationship that means uh, our different types of wealth, really, is what I'm hearing. And it's so interesting that perhaps you're not there at the financially most richest place in your life, but perhaps you're at the wealthiest point in your life. And I find that distinction to be helpful for me when I try to think about what I strive for. And uh, mm. I think it's also part of this decolonization of, uh, of my mind, because I certainly was in the entrenchment of wanting a lot of money because i thought that was what life was about if i just say briefly but i'm I'm starting to gain a broader perspective of how can i be as wealthy uh, and how can i have as good life as possible and for me i'm sensing that that's about more than just the financial game because um, there's so much more to it and uh, i love hearing about Inspirational stories that you share from Barchara and uh, elsewhere because I, as Jonathan also mentioned, that, that there's an innate longing in me for something richer, a richer experience, a more wealthier experience. So,
1: mm. yeah, one of the metaphors that I find really helpful is that wealth is well being, which mm-hmm. means wealth is holistic health, mm. yeah. health of the whole system. And then there are different kinds of well-being. And financial well-being is one of them within an economy that has money. But mm-hmm. if you don't have social well-being, emotional well-being, the ability to manage your time... I remember when the, when the Seattle Happiness Project was launched. It was launched by Sustainable Seattle. And um, I spent a brief period of time helping Sustainable Seattle as the chair of their board while they were going through a transition. So I got to know the people that launched this happiness project. They had a survey where they measured the different ways of being happy. It turns out in the Western world, the primary deficit, the thing that people don't have enough of, is not money, it's time. And the reason that they pursue money is they think that it gives them more time. I think it buys them time. But let's go back to basic physics for a second. You can do this with Schrodinger's wave equation and collapse of wave functions, or you could do it with thermodynamics and the second law and how entropy increases. You can do it any way you want. But basically, the arrow of time is one directional. It goes forward and it doesn't go backward. And it's physically impossible by the laws of physics. The law of conservation of mass energy and the second law of thermodynamics tell us it's impossible to go backward in time. And so it's always going forward which means the only currency we really have is the continual flow of time, the continual loss of the time we have left. And so what's interesting is if we confuse the value of the future with the value of the present, so I work now to make money for the future within an extractive system. The system is extracting wealth from me. My future is deprived and my present is deprived. But if I can align what I value now with what I value in the future, then I use my time in a way that keeps me present to what I care about. And this is just called the art of a good life. There are wisdom Mm -hmm. traditions going all the way back into antiquity about this. Mm -hmm. But the key about something like multi-capitalism is it shows us that you can measure these things as being in different places. So time is one, money is one, social relationships is another, access to infrastructure is another, and so on. And you can start to map them out and then just be more concrete, more clear about what you invest in and what Mm. investments you seek. Mm. And that's extremely helpful to be able to do.
0: Definitely. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, for sure more, more, more that is value than money. Uh uh, we can say that. And I I really agree with you there, Merkel, that I really resonate with your your feeling of looking at it as at as such a broader perspective. Because I mean, talked about entrenchment earlier, that how we the the society that we were born into uh, and the idea of how you should live your life, you should get a good career, you should work a lot so you can provide for your family and such and Previously, we've recorded an episode on, on stories and how that impacts us. And I'm just so grateful and happy for you to share your story, how you live your life. And I think it's uh, it's very inspirational. And, and, and I'm super happy and grateful for what you shared today in our conversation. And I feel that we could be going on for hours and hours. But uh, unfortunately, we've reached our uh, time limit. But lastly, I want to... I want to ask you our question that we always ask our guests in the end of our episodes is that what encouragement would you like to give to listeners throughout this decade?
1: Yeah, I would say we're in a time that has a dark side and a bright side. It's like two sides of the same coin. We are rapidly crossing several tipping points of the planet. Uh, I think it was two years ago that 90% of the Great Barrier Reef bleached. And right now, wildfires have become uncontrollable on the North American continent. Mm -hmm. The thermohaline circulation of the ocean is slowing down. Arctic sea ice is soon to be gone during the Northern Hemisphere summer. All these tipping points of the planet. So we're at a time of immense and unprecedented change, which could be absolutely horrifying and deserves to be. At the same time, the next decade is the time we have to choose to leave the extractive economy and live regenerative lives. And depending on where you are and when you get hit, you are eventually going to discover the carpet was pulled out from under you. And so the next 10 years is the time where people in different places will still have a choice. There are people in the last 10 years, look at Syria, for example, in the last 10 years where they thought they had the choice and then it went away. Look at people in Northern California right now that are leaving because of the wildfires. They thought they could stay there and now they're leaving. They're being forced to leave instead of choosing to. They're being forced to leave the broken economy instead of choosing to create an intentional life. So the next 10 years is the time where, it's like our last window of time where we can choose to live intentionally to help regenerate the earth. Instead of being thrown into a refugee camp where someone teaches permaculture and then finding Mm. our way in the midst of collapse, which by the way, that's happening now. Mm. Ecosystem Restoration Camps has a project to work with refugee camps and other groups doing disaster response to as well. So this, my advice in the next 10 years, which I would really say in the next year Mm. to set on the path, is take your first intentional choice into a regenerative life while you still can. Mm. And you'll be grateful that you did. Because as you do it, you're going to find other people on the path. You'll find friends or you'll take your friends with you. And you'll become more empowered to mentor others. And this will be my closing observation, which is that all that we talked about with cultural scaffolding is not in the world. It's in the interactions, which Mm -hmm. means you are cultural scaffolding for someone else. Mm -hmm. And they are cultural scaffolding for you. So the best thing you can do in the world right now is to be someone else's cultural scaffolding. Hmm. Basically help someone else make changes in their life to become more regenerative as you are doing the same. Hmm. And you will help each other. It's like a buddy system. You hold hands as you cross the street. That's what we're doing right now with our learning journeys on Earth Regenerators. And that's what everyone on Earth needs to be doing. So my advice in the next 10 years is become intentional about what you care about Take proactive steps to decolonize your mind, definancialize your life, find friends, bring friends, make friends to help you do it. And then become a mentor as quickly as you can to help other people.
2: Because
1: hmm. we're all gonna need all the help we can
2: get. Hmm. Boom, that's a mic drop right there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, it was amazing to speak with you and have you on the podcast. And I hope to see more of you in the future.
0: And lastly, before we wrap up, if people would uh, like to get in contact with you and to buy your book as well, uh, where could they go and uh, how how can they get get a hold of you?
1: The easiest way is to join Earth Regenerators, which you can find by a Google search. And it's on Mm -hmm. a mobile app called Mighty Networks. So you can download the Mighty Networks app and search for Earth Regenerators or just type Earth Regenerators into Google, and -hmm. that'll find everything that you need, including more than three thousand other members that are currently there, who are learning mm. how to become this cultural scaffolding for each other, mm. including Melker. So thank you, amazing. For being
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Perfect. All right, Joe. Uh, thanks a lot again for uh, for your, your participation and contribution to to our podcast party. It was a real delight to to talk to you, and uh, hope to connect with you more in the future.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here, and let me know if you ever want to talk again.
0: Perfect, thanks. thanks. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Decade Podcast. I would like to ask you to reflect on anything in this episode that impacted you or left an impression that you could take with you in this decade of action. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend or in your network on social media. And as always, feel free to reach out with feedback, questions, or topics you would like us to cover. You can reach us through our social media or on thedecadepodcast at gmail.com. And we hope to see you more further down the road throughout this decade. Thank you. Until next time.